0: This is episode 54 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of Fitek Sanders, Master Magician. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 54. A couple of things I need to make you aware of before we begin. It's auction time. So first up, uh, July 17th and 18th is the Haversat and Ewing auction with more items from the Gary Darwin Museum. To find out more about that, go to haversatewing.com to make your bids. Next, we have the Potter and Potter auction that's coming up on July 25th. This will be the fourth and final auction of the incredible Jim Rollins collection. To find out more about that auction or to download the catalog, go to potterauctions.com. And Really quick, I want to share with you a wonderful magic history documentary I just watched on Amazon Prime. It's called... Quiet Masters, The History and Relevance of the Black Magical Artist. And it was produced by Ice McDonald, And it is a wonderful documentary. And it was great to see some of my friends on there. Um, But I have to say I was sad because one particular friend was missing from that documentary. And he really should have been there. And I want to take a couple minutes and tell you about this uh, magician who you've likely never heard of. He wasn't famous. Uh, He didn't live long enough to make his mark, but yet he made his mark in the hearts of everyone he touched. His name was Eugene Johnson. He came to magic a little later in life, but fully embraced it. He was a very serious student of magic. He took lessons. He went to the high-end conferences. And when I say high-end, I mean like the high-end marketing conferences, he attended conventions, he put in the time, he met with professionals, he absorbed it all, and he made a ton of friends along the way. Eugene had an infectious laugh that frankly made him kind of an important part of any gathering. If you had Eugene there, you knew he'd be laughing and so would everyone else, and he was, he was just a great fellow to be around. When I met Eugene, he was in need of magic lessons. So I took, uh, I took him on and um, began to teach him some basic sleight of hand. And along the way, during one of the lessons, he told me of a concept he had. He said, I'm going to be known as Genie the Magician. And the moment he said that, <laughs> it just, it something clicked with me. And I was like, no, you're not. And he looked at me like, what? I'm like, you're not going to be Genie the Magician. You are going to be the magical genie. And his eyes lit up because that was obviously a much better name. Um, And right then and there, we stopped the lesson and I went through my closets trying to find old costumes and I found this old costume vest. It was like a Renaissance vest that I had and I gave it to him. I said, here's the first piece for your new character. And I don't think I ever called him Eugene after that point. I think I always called him the magical genie from there on out. It wasn't long after that that Eugene hired a professional a costume designer to create a genie costume for him, and he honestly looked incredible, and he really had the, the, the corner of the market, though I don't know if he ever realized it or not. A couple years later, when it came time to do his website, I noticed his copywriting was all wrong, so I called him up. I said, hey, come on over to the studio. I want to help you with this um, copywriting on your Website, your brochures. And he came over and I rewrote everything for him from scratch. Um, and, and that is not to take any credit away from Eugene. It's to let you know that I was invested in my friend. Um, I didn't charge him for any copywriting. I just wanted him to succeed because he was such a great guy. Um, I remember I was involved, this is a long time ago, I was involved in a show called The Super Show of Magic. And I asked Eugene if he'd like to be part of the show. Actually, I can't remember if it was me or if it was Adam who was the producer. But anyway, one of us asked Eugene if he'd like to open the show with his Dove Act. And Eugene was thrilled. He's like, yeah, I'd love to. So now Eugene was a part-timer, but always approached magic from the mind of a professional. Everything he did was like a pro. Except, (laughs) Except for one brief moment during this show on stage, which we will all remember with fondness. He was on stage, he just did his genie act, his genie dove act, and he was now doing his second routine. And for the briefest of moments, it must have, must have just occurred to him, he must have just realized that Harry he was standing on stage in front of hundreds of people, and the thrill just overcame him. And he verbalized it and he didn't curse or anything, but uh, what ended up happening is he came out of character and it was funny. He just talked like himself for a moment. And then he, <laughs> he went right back into talking like the genie. So it was very obvious. He stepped out of character, but it was, it was funny and it was great. And it was just perfect. Um, there was a time when Eugene called me for advice about going full time. And I told him pretty much what I told everybody. I I discourage them. I say, don't do it. And, um, I figure, you know, if you really want to do it, you're not going to listen to me. And maybe you'll come back a second time and go, are you sure? And I might give you some different advice, but if you're that easily persuaded not to do it, you weren't meant to do it in the first time, you know, in the first place. Well, one of the reasons is, is the rejection factor, um, in this business is just debilitating. And some people can handle it, and other people can't. And it's it's one of the hardest things to deal with. Uh, in Eugene's case, he took my advice. He did not go full time. He kept being a happy part timer. Now I have uh, one other story I want to share on Eugene. He always wanted to be a dove worker, and I think uh, I think he was inspired maybe by Lance Burton. Perhaps I'm not sure. Um, And at first, he wore the genie costume, but it was a little too much. So he opted instead to wear a tuxedo and use the turban. And it worked for him. And I remember seeing his act one evening, and he started with a genie lamp. And he rubbed the genie lamp, and all of a sudden, a puff of smoke came out of the genie lamp. And then a bird appeared in the midst of the smoke. And I have to tell you, that one single effect floored me. I have no idea, even to this day, where that bird came from. I even I own the genie lamp, and I have no idea where that bird came from. It was one of the most magical moments I've ever had, and it was so um, it meant so much to me that it came from Eugene of all people, um, one of my former students. So that was great. I remember one night he called me and he asked me if I had any doves. And I, I told him, actually, I have one. Um, it was one I wanted to, desperately to get rid of. And then I got to thinking about it. And actually, I gave Eugene his very first dove. And now I gave him his last. You see, it wasn't long after that that I received a phone call. And I couldn't believe my ears. Eugene and his wife and his sister-in-law were killed in a traffic accident when someone slammed into the back of his car. I can't even tell you who called me to tell me the news. I don't know. I can tell you that time stood still. The world went silent tears. Well, you know, how could the magical genie be gone? There had been a time when we talked almost every night on the phone about magic. And now my friend was gone. He died in June of 2011, almost 10 years ago now. And I wanted to, to honor his memory here. Eugene Johnson was truly a great man and a wonderful friend. and that's how I'll remember him. And now we come to another performer who I'd heard of in the past but never knew much about. I had a friend that knew him, but I was not really that familiar, probably because I didn't know how to pronounce the man's name. And there's something psychological about that which causes me to avoid folks whose names I can't pronounce. Another one, just a case in point, was uh, Chevalier Ernest Thorne. For the longest time, I was unclear how to pronounce that name Chevalier, so I just avoided him for the longest time, and I'm so glad that I finally went out of my way to learn how to say Thorne's first name, because it turned out that Thorn was the real deal, a real missing link of illusionists. He was amazing. Let me add something before I mention today's feature also. I truly believe it's as much as what you leave behind is what you do while you're here that will help you leave your mark in magic. Naturally, the more you do while you're here, while you're alive, the better. But if you leave nothing behind, meaning no posters, no photos, nothing to remember you by, you can be quickly forgotten. If you leave something behind, it will give future historians cause to learn about you. Case in point, Walter Truman Best, known as the Great Morrow. He was a Lyceum and Chautauqua performer. He had a brilliant career in his own little world there, and he died of typhoid fever very young, but he had full-color lithos that he left behind, as did his competitors like Brush and Laurent and Germain, all of whom performed in that same market around the same time. But how many other magicians worked there that didn't leave anything behind? I imagine there's a lot. I mean, if you just look at the cover of the Sphinx magazine, there are untold photos of the, on the cover of people. I have no clue who these people are. So what you leave behind really helps. So now we come to FeeTake Sanders. And it's pronounced Take Sanders, not Fetiqu. <laughs> like I thought. <laughs> Sorry, I just, that's what I thought it was. I was like, that can't be right. No, it's Fetake. And this man left behind a lot in regards to posters and flyers and photos and advertising cards and more. He he also left a way to trace his history. He was born, Fitek Sanders, May 12, 1915 in Nashville, Tennessee. In 1910, William Sanders, his father, saw a performance by the Armstrongs. This was J. Hartford Armstrong, who was called the King of the Colored Conjurers, and his young daughter Ellen. They presented a mind-reading act. The elder Sanders was impressed by the psychic powers of the baby daughter, and his vivid description of the show to his son helped inspire Vitek to become a magician. So at a young age, Fitek began to learn the rudiments of sleight of hand. This allowed the young man, with no money, to still obtain skill. He would show neighborhood boys and fool them with his wonders. One that he must have done very well was the multiplying billiard balls, and I can just imagine these were the, those really cheap, really small wooden uh, balls from a magic set they're obviously not the size of real billiard balls but uh, and this was actually pointed out by one of his friends who suggested he called them the multiplying cherries and i got to say that's actually it's <laughs> actually a really good idea even today And one thing I enjoyed as I read the various stories of Mr. Sanders was his willingness to introduce himself to every magician he could. whether, uh, Whether it was writing to them or meeting them in person, he was always respectful, asked for advice on how to become a magician. Here's one example. In November 1933, in the issue of The Sphinx, John Mulholland writes, A few years ago, Fitek Sanders was a kid, and at the time, he wrote me and confided that he wanted to become a magician. I advised him the best I could, and he made good. He proved it by being booked at the Chicago World's Fair on the Enchanted Island. That Chicago World's Fair gig at the Enchanted Island is a fun story. He had to do a live audition for the concession manager, and uh, and the concession manager let him know under no uncertain terms he better be good or he would be out on his you know what. And a very nervous Fitek, who was around 16 years old at the time, goes on to do his first trick and actually messes it up. But without missing a beat, he moves into the next routine. And when the show finished, the manager was actually more than pleased and even complimented Fitek on his originality. So I get the impression that the manager thought that this mess-up was actually done on purpose as a way to ingratiate himself to the audience, Though you and I know differently, in 1934 he received this write-up from Assembly Number Three. Vitek Sanders, who presented a great big show practically from his vest pocket, this fellow who told me afterwards he was far from the world's greatest magician, thereby giving me heart failure, is a consummate showman, and he drives home again the fact that the magician who is a success is more of an actor. Than a dexterous manipulator of his materials. According to the July 1935 issue of The Sphinx, Fitek was touring through several southern states with great results. He was performing in churches and schools at this point, but it's the summertime that I find interesting. During the summer months, he performed at clubs in the big cities like D.C., Chicago, New York, and more. He did table magic in between music that was presented by Cab Calloway and others. And Sanders didn't just squander his money away, no way. He invested it in a college education and he went to the Tennessee State College. Another way he invested his money was actually back into his show. He spent a lot of money on promotional materials. He studied marketing and sales and would try to create the best advertising pieces possible. He even employed visual tricks in some of his pieces, like the the double set of eyes that many performers from that time were using. But it worked. These items were to promote his show, and if he was doing a fundraiser for a church, that also meant more money for the charity. And again, this is another reason we remember him today, because he had so much advertising material that we could look back on. That and another reason, which I'll mention later. In 1937, Guy Jarrett was putting out his infamous book, Jarrett. Fee wrote to Jarrett asking him to reserve a copy at the $5 price and explaining some of his financial difficulties. Well, according to the book, Jarrett by Jim Steinmeier, Guy Jarrett wrote Fee and said, I remember you working at the World's Fair, pitching Svengali decks and doing magic. We had a nice talk back then. Please accept this copy of my book as a gift. In fact, Fetake would often tell the story of meeting Jarrett at the World's Fair. Jarrett told him at the time, I can make you the most famous magician in the world with my illusions. But Fetake didn't consider him very credible. For one, the man was walking everywhere while Fetake was driving, and he was considerably younger than Mr. Jarrett. But he was still kind and polite, and this obviously paid off in the long run. In regards to the pronunciation of his name, from the January 1938 issue of the Linking Ring magazine, it says, Fitek, who insists that his name be correctly pronounced, like B-take, is a strong believer in showmanship in preference to a stage full of apparatus, and how well he proves his point. In my mind, he is one of the finest showmen of magic. A couple of articles point out that he added vents to his show and was very envious of his dummies because they got more attention than he did. Vents are ventriloquist dummies for those not in the know. His act was very heavy on comedy. My friend Scott Humpston, who knew Fetake in his later years, told me he was more like a stand-up comedy magician. One thing that really made me smile was learning that Fitek included impressions in his show. He did impressions of popular figures of the day like Stephen Fetchit, George Arliss, Joe Lewis, Ted Lewis, Jimmy Cagney, and others. I'm reminded of some of the early impressionists like Frank Gorshin, who did some amazing voices before he became the Riddler on Batman in 1966, or Sammy Davis Jr., who was an amazing showman, dancer, singer, who also had this host of impressions that he would just slay the audience with. It's great to know that Feetake was not relying simply upon magic, but branched out into other things to create a really unique show. Now, speaking of his magic, this is a little harder to pin down, likely because he had such a unique way of presenting things. Whether or not everything he did was original, I have a feeling his presentations were always original. There is one routine, which I've seen mentioned several times. I'm going to give you the word-for-word description from the pages of The Lincoln Ring. It goes like this. One original plot, named after the late prize fighter, was called the Joe Louis Giant Card Effect. It consisted of three playing cards, a king, a queen, and a deuce, which are turned around to show that the queen has a red back, in contrast with the other two cards which have blue backs. The rhyming patter that accompanied the effect was done in a Shakespearean voice and told the story about the king's raising the deuce because the queen dyed her hair and was planning to fight with her. When the red back card was turned around, The queen had changed into a picture of Joe Lewis, And the king suddenly decided not to fight after all. Joe Lewis, of course, being the heavyweight champion back then. From an article in the April 1984 issue of the Linking Ring magazine, the writer Jim Magus is writing about the history of blacks and magic. Fetake Sanders figures prominently. At one point, he is sharing the billiard ball routine that Fetake did as a professional. Gone were the tiny red balls, a.k.a. cherries. In their place were eggs. He would make eggs multiply while telling a very humorous story of Adam and Eve. An example, this is from the uh, actual routine. In the beginning there was God, Fitek pattered. One day he reached down and he scooped up a handful of clay. Fitek mimed this same action. And he formed man. And suddenly in his hands was a white hen's egg. God looked at the man and said, well, he's a good egg. I'll make him some company. Well, (laughs) you get the idea. Little jokes after each production made for a cute routine. Now, if this were presented in a school or a church, um, which were early venues that he performed in, I I imagine it would be a hit. But from what I gather from Feetake. He continued to hone his showmanship throughout his entire life, and I guarantee he he could deliver this exact same routine to an audience of adults and bring the house down. In 1943, Orson Welles and Richard Himber were producing a show together called Magic on Broadway. They brought in Fitek to be one of the guests to perform on the bill, along with John Mulholland, Carl Ballantyne, and others. Now listen to this from 1943. Sheer perseverance has been the whole secret of the progress which Fitek Sanders has made as an entertainer within the short period of his experience on this platform. It seems only a short while ago when Fitek was a neophyte seeking information and advice from those who had followed a magical inclination over a period of years. Having the valued faculty for retaining every helpful suggestion He is now in one of the upper brackets, working in line with some of the world's best. Then the article finishes with this. The sudden death of his wife, Irene, in Nashville, Tennessee, recently brought him to his former home and friends for a few days. His wife died of pneumonia. Barely a month later, he was off on tour with the USO. He was actually given the position of tour manager, of the group and worked with many stars, among them Pearl Bailey and Eubie Blake. In November of 1944, Fitek finished the 11-month tour with the USL. One article mentions that around that time he was doing 200 dates per year. We get to August 1948, and another issue of The Linking Ring mentions he has added black light to his show. Now, it doesn't say how he used it, but it's likely with a traditional black art routine where the black light, which is actually purple, helps to illuminate certain colors on stage. Somewhere about this time, he met a woman named Mildred Reed, who by all accounts looked like his first wife, Irene. The two began to date and fell in love and married, and they had a daughter, Carolyn. But the relationship did not last. She was not cut out for being on the road. My friend Scott Humston said of Mildred, she apparently did not like magicians. And somewhere in my research, I came across a piece that said, Heaven took my first wife, and the devil took the other, as his second wife divorced him after she found out that the miser's dream is not a reality. During his career, Fitek Sanders submitted items to the Linking Ring magazine as well as other magazines. Some were ads. Some were information on where he was on the road. Great information for the historian trying to track down this busy showman because he is in so many magazines. It's impressive. In 1958, he suffered a stroke which forced him into semi-retirement. The stroke apparently affected his peripheral vision. The first time this is actually mentioned in the magic press wasn't until 1963 when it says, in 1963, he is reported to have been sick for five years. So go back five. It's 1958. He continued to work on magic. He apparently coached some fellow magicians as well. He kept his performance close to home rather than hundreds of miles away. You have to figure that this man has presented well over 4,000 shows in his life. That's an impressive career. Fitek Sanders died from complications due to pneumonia June 2nd, 1992. The same day, June 2nd, that his wife, Irene, had died, by the way, also from pneumonia. In the obituary in the MUM magazine, Sammy Smith writes of his dear friend, It was my privilege to know him for the past seven years and to have had hundreds of conversations with him. He traveled with me to many of my own performances and enjoyed being part of show business again. Many times when I introduced him as my guest, teachers would come up and say with glee, Fee Take Sanders, I have so many happy memories of you coming to my school every year. And at that point, he had been retired for 25 years. That's someone who's left a, a big impression. Fee take Sanders chose to be cremated, and I assume his ashes remain here in his hometown of Nashville, Tennessee. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast, The Life of Take Sanders. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I do want to mention a couple of other things really quick. First off, earlier in the podcast, I mentioned the documentary Quiet Masters. Now, this is on um, Amazon Prime, and I had to do some digging for it because I, I think I saw it mentioned in an um, article. And I was like, oh, well, let me see if it's still available. So I did a search on Amazon Prime, and it's there. It's still there. You can watch it for free. It's wonderful. Ice McDonald did this documentary, and it's superb. I absolutely loved it. Like I said, the only unfortunate thing for me was I felt my, my good friend, the Magical Genie, was missing from that, that bunch. So I, that was a kind of a... Um, Sad point, but, you know, I still love the documentary just the same. One other thing I do have to mention, and this this is brought to my attention by another friend of mine. So, uh, once again, I know what's wrong with me, but um, uh, big apologies to Chip Romero. Because apparently in my apology to Chip last month, I mispronounced his last name. Uh, okay. It's Chip Romero, Chip Romero. I got it. I knew it then. I know it now. Uh, I just messed it up. So sorry about that. Cause I have other friends that have a name that's similar, which I'm not even going to mention so that I don't screw it up now. Chip is the man who owns the most incredible collection of Doug Henning memorabilia and Doug Henning props. And if Doug Henning came back from the dead, he'd go to Chip's house and say, Hey, this is where my show is. Uh, and everything, costumes, you name it, it's there. It's remarkable. So, uh, kudos to Chip, and sorry about mispronouncing your last name. My apologies. So, that's going to do it for this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast, episode number 54. I hope you have enjoyed it. If you did, please uh, like the episode. Either um, there should be like a little heart or a thumbs up or a star or whatever it is. Just click that. And um, on your podcasting device. And if you listen on Apple iTunes or Apple podcasts, please consider giving me a five-star review. Um, that helps out in the long run. Um, it's technical, but, uh, moves me up higher in the rankings and makes it easier for people to see the podcast and thus more listeners. And that's what I'm looking for. More listeners. So there you go. Uh, once again, thank you for being listeners. Thank you for listening to the podcast and, uh, My name is Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Please have a safe week and be well. And we'll talk to you soon.